So we are um, uh, in the middle of March Madness. I, I know you all know that. And we, we have, uh, I know they, they didn't want me to let this go unsaid. We, we, have, we have four Purdue graduates uh, that go to our church. Uh, they're all members. And uh, just wanted to let you guys know that we're thinking about you. And our hearts go out to you. Uh, if you didn't hear, uh, Purdue was, had a historic upset. Uh, they lost as a number one seed. So heart, heart, heavy hearts. Um, no, we are in a, we're in a series in, uh, in, in Matthew, uh, and we have been walking our way through. And today we are in, um, in Matthew chapter 4, um, and it's our eighth, uh, eighth sermon in this series that's going to go on for a, a really, really long time. Um, but we are, actually, we are actually up to chapter 4. And, uh, and so as we come to this, this, this text, these first 11 verses that you heard Patty just read for us, um, I, I want to make sure that you, that you remember uh, the end of chapter 3. So if you've been here uh, throughout the series, you know that uh, we, you know, we start off with this genealogy and the birth of Jesus. And then in, in chapter 2, uh, we have kind of a little bit of the details of Jesus' childhood and his upbringing. And then in chapter 3, we get introduced to John the Baptist. And then Jesus, uh, at the end of the chapter, Jesus is baptized. And if you look at verses 13 through 17, if you have your Bible there, at the end of chapter 3, you just get these, these five verses that, that tell us about the baptism uh, of Jesus. And there's a little confusion from John the Baptist's end of why Jesus needs to get baptized, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, but then Jesus goes into the water in verse 16, and immediately when he went up from the water... Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Verse 17, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Matthew, as he writes this, uh, this passage in verse 16 and verse 17, he uses the word behold. And it, it, that's like a, it's a, like a command. It's, it's like the word look. Don't, don't miss this. Don't miss what's happening as Jesus is getting baptized. Uh, there's Trinitarian activity going on. Uh, Jesus is in the water. The Spirit descends like a dove. You know, the heavens have ripped open. The, the Spirit descends, and then the, the, the Father smiles uh, on, on Jesus. So it's this incredible mountaintop moment. It's this incredible experience where Jesus uh, has all of these things happen. If, if you were here a couple Sundays ago, we went to a passage in the Old Testament where the, the, in the, the prophet Isaiah was writing, and the people of Israel would know this text so, so well. But Isaiah says, you know, like, it's such a mess. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and rescue us. And, and, and Jewish people would have known this text. Matthew wrote this gospel primarily for a Jewish audience. And then as he talks about the, the baptism of Jesus, he's, it's a tell. It's a reveal. He's saying, look, the heavens are getting ripped open. What do you think of this is? This is the Savior. This is the one. And Jesus receives this, this unique uh, dynamic of the Spirit and then the smile of the Father. The Father says, this is my son. I'm so pleased. I'm so happy. I, I, I'm just, my, heart, my heart is full. With, with who he is. So it's this mountaintop moment. Pretty incredible. Uh, now, I personally, you know, I've never had the heavens literally rip open uh, in front of me. I've not experienced the, the spirit descending like a dove. Um, but, you know, I, I have had some pretty intimate experiences with the God of heaven. Um, there, there's been a, a number of times uh, in, in my life where, you know, it's like I experience his love and I experience his presence in ways that are, you know, honestly, they're not quite describable. 
And, and, and maybe, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe it was in a time of prayer. Maybe it was in a time reading your Bible. Maybe it was a time during a sermon or singing a song. Sometimes it happens if you've ever gone on a retreat or gone to a, a camp. It could also be sitting at a table. Uh, I've had this happen where it's just like you are in a setting where the, the table, there's just, there's harmony and you're sharing a meal and there's, there's beauty in the food, there's beauty in the fellowship, and you, know, you can just almost find yourself as like an observer of that moment and just have a heart full of gratitude towards God and his good gifts, recognizing that there, like, life could be dramatically different than it is right now, and just intensely feel the gifts that God has given you in your life, and, and just like almost be, be caught up in, 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 that, in that moment. Uh, maybe you experience that outside on the top of a mountain or on the, the sand of the beach. Maybe it's been in a, in a sacred place for you or a historical place. Um, I've had several of those moments right here in this room in, in the worship services that, uh, that, that I've been able to be part of for the last 16 and a half years and, um, and to, to have God move in certain ways, sometimes while I'm preaching, sometimes while I'm seated, um, but to, to, to experience these, these moments where it's just, it's, it's more intense. Uh, I got the opportunity to go to, to the Holy Land a few years ago, and uh, there's a lot of incredible things that you get to see and do uh, in, in Israel and Palestine, um, but, but one of them was uh, in the garden, uh, what they believe is the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a church there called Church of the Nations, and there's a, a garden with olive trees, and olive trees live a really, really long time. And you wander through this little garden of olive trees, and you know Israel is, or Jerusalem is, the, you can see, you can see the the uh, Temple um, Mount, and uh, you know you just sit there and you think like it, it's it's possible that Jesus was praying here on his last night before he was arrested. And there's just a, a sense in which there's nothing necessarily special about that space. But boy, do, do, do all of the realities of who God is and what he's done in the world come, come flooding in. And there's just an intensity to those moments. And if you've had one of those moments, maybe you can relate to this, these, these mountaintop experiences. You kind of come out of them and it's like you're, you're a little revved up. You're kind of fueled for the battle. You're, you're, you're eager to go. You're ready to roll. You, you feel like you can go conquer the world for Jesus. It's like, this is so real. I'm so ready to go. You know, camp ministry often experiences, you know, kids that go to camp or teenagers that go to camp, you know, they come back from camp and it's like, they kind of wish school started the next week. It's like, they want to go tell people about Jesus. They're like, they're eager to go like follow him and be faithful to him and, and like show the world. This, this is true and this is real. And your heart can be so full and so energetic. You can feel like nobody can stop you. Like, let, you know, let's, let's get to work. Your spiritual life feels like it's unstoppable, like it's, you know, it's going to be up and to the right. It's just going to be so good. It's going to be so good from here on out. I can relate to those feelings. Think about Jesus again. The heavens have ripped open, the spirits descended, and the Father has smiled. You think Jesus might feel like that? Like, let's go. Let's do this. Let's preach this message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Let me tell everybody. Well... That is not exactly what happens. As you get to chapter 4, verse 1, this, this is chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up 
by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That verse gets worse with every single phrase. Look again at that. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, okay, into the wilderness. That, that is never good. If you, if you read through the Bible, going into the wilderness is not a phrase for like good times around the corner. Going into the wilderness is usually bad news. If you watch the show Yellowstone, it's like taking somebody to the railroad station. It's, it's, this, is, it's not, this is not good. So the Spirit's leading him. That seems good. But then where? To, to the wilderness? Okay. That, that makes me uncomfortable. To be tempted? By the devil. Like it just, it just keeps getting worse. Every point of data, every phrase just makes you cringe more. And it's like by the end of the sentence, I think everybody will be hitting the eject button. Like, <laughs> no, thank you. I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be uh, in that mix at all. And coming off of a mountaintop experience, it could be disorienting. You could anticipate things to just be incredible for you to go talk with uh, you know, lost people or go help the poor or go, 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 go be involved in the mission of God in the world out with real people and real stuff. And yet here, Jesus' mountaintop experience leads to the desert, leads to the wilderness. And again, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you were anticipating a chapter of your life, a season of your life, that things were supposed to go well, things were supposed to be turning around. There were all these indicators that it's like it's going to be good now. And instead of it being good, you've been led, it feels like, into the wilderness, and things are complicated and things are hard. Well, Jesus can relate to that. Because after his mountaintop experience, uh, he is taken out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What, what is God doing? Man, what a question that is. What is God doing? I, you know, I, I have to be honest, like I've asked that question a lot in my life. And I have asked that question a lot more over the last three years. Um, you know, today is the third Sunday of March. And the third Sunday of March in 2020, we didn't have church. The third Sunday of March in 2020 was the first Sunday of the COVID, uh, the COVID lockdowns. You know, here we are three years later, and you look in the rearview mirror, so much disruption, so much division, so much loss, and it's a legitimate, it's a legitimate question to be like, what, 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 what are you doing, God? What, what, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense to us. Uh, maybe you have a difficult situation that has nothing to do with COVID. A health situation, a relationship, a financial situation, and you can't make sense of that either. And maybe you're saying, you know, what, are you, what are you doing, God? Matthew gives us no indication that Jesus is confused. So Jesus comes out of the water, this incredible moment of intimacy with the Father, and then the next thing he knows, he's being led into the wilderness. Matthew gives no indication that Jesus is, being confu is confused by this. Matthew doesn't tell us if Jesus knew why he was going to the wilderness. Um, if, if, you, if you're familiar with the, the, the theology of Jesus, with the doctrine that surrounds Jesus, Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, the God-man. And he, he, he's hard to understand. Because he is 100% God and 100% man. And when we add 100% and 100%, we get 200%. We, we get two. 
Uh, but with Jesus, you add God and you add man and you get, you get one. Now, one unique one in the history of the world, but one. And, and there's, there's a lot of, of things that happen in the story of Jesus that, that sometimes it's not quite clear how all the dynamics are at play. Uh, what, what, what we do know for sure is that Jesus had a human mind. And there are some things that apparently Jesus didn't know. And so in Luke chapter 2, it, we, we are told that Jesus grew up. And, and, he, and he, he grew up physically, but he also grew up intellectually. In Mark chapter 13, we get this indication that, 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 Jesus, that Jesus was in, in, in this sort of like, he, he didn't know what the, what the Father's timeline was. In Hebrews chapter 5, we have a phrase that says that Jesus learned obedience. And that doesn't mean that Jesus went from disobedience to obedience. It, what it seems to indicate is that as Jesus grew as a person, he, he learned to obey. His mind began to, to, to learn what, what, this, what this was, what obedience was. And you say, how is that so? I, I'm not telling you I know how it's so. I'm saying that the Bible gives us multiple indications that Jesus had, had this, this there, there, were, there were some things that Jesus had, had limited in the, in the will of the Father. So he didn't, he didn't know everything. Did he, did he know what he was going into the wilderness for? I, I, I don't know. Matthew just tells us that Jesus went into the wilderness and then he fasted for 40 days. So what's going on in Jesus' mind? We don't know. Maybe he knew that the Spirit was leading him there for temptation. Maybe he didn't, but he goes. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the shadow of a mountaintop moment, uh, he's taken into the wilderness and he begins an extended fast. Well, while he's fasting, um, the verse, first verse comes true, taken into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days, 40 nights fasting, uh, Captain Obvious here, he was hungry. And so, you know, I, I, you know obviously, after 40 days, uh, I, think, I think you would be too. And so at the end of verse 2, we've got Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness, um, and he is hungry. And then you go through this, uh, this reality that verse 3 the tempter came. And over the next few verses, we, we, get, we get the tempter going to work on Jesus. Uh, maybe your Bible has subtitles. And if it does, the subtitle above chapter 4 in my Bible says the temptation of Jesus. And that's exactly right. Uh, that's, what, that's what Satan, that's what the devil, that's what the tempter, that's, that's what he does. He tempts Jesus. So here's what I want to point out to you. Uh, we, we get three specific temptations that are listed out here. Uh, there, there's probably way more temptations that happened between Satan and, and Jesus. In Luke's account of this, uh, he actually says, when every temptation was completed. And he gives this indication that there was all kinds of them. He, here's three of them, but he was attacking him from all kinds of angles. Uh, so as we look at this passage, I just want to try to draw out some, some aspects of what Satan was, was doing. First of all, Satan is a liar. Satan is an absolute liar. Did you know that? Uh, from the beginning uh, to this day, uh, he is a distorter of the truth. He lies about everything. Uh, when we first meet him in chapter 3, he is a liar. And he distorts the truth. He wants to destroy and uh, you see it on display in his interaction with Jesus. So Satan is a liar. Satan plants doubt. 
Um, you can see it through this whole text. That, that's, he's constantly working to undermine the character and person of God the Father, of, of the God of heaven. He, he, is, he is constantly, you know, he uses this term, if. If you are the Son of God. It's, he doesn't say, you're not the Son of God. He says, if you are. It's this, it's this undermining. One commentator says that doubt is the lever of temptation. You know, doubt is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a powerful thing. And when you're dealing with powerful things, you, you have to be wise. You, you have to be careful with your doubts. You, you, you actually want to doubt your doubts. You, 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 you know, doubt is a part of life. Doubt is a part of faith. So doubt is not necessarily a bad thing, but Satan loves to use doubt to undermine the character of the God of heaven. He wants to destroy us with our doubts. He says to Jesus in verse 3 and in verse 5, if you are the Son of God. Satan starts with a question that, get this, if you remember just a couple verses ago, that question is related to what the Father had just said to Jesus. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. What did the Father just say to Jesus? This is my beloved Son. What is Satan's attack? If you are. The very thing that God just said to Jesus, Satan wants to start chopping at the trunk, chopping at that tree. See, you know, the seeds of doubt, planting doubt. And as I said, he did the same thing in the garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. God speaks to them, and right on the heels of God's word, here comes Satan. And Satan is pitching a, a, a manipulated story, a twisted story. He takes what God says and, and just doubts it, casts shadows on it. He wants to do that in your life too. So, so watch out. He's a liar. He loves to use doubt. Satan attacks weak spots. Look at verses 2 and 3. We just found out that Jesus is hungry, so where does Satan go with temptation number one? Aren't you hungry? <laughs> don't, don't you need some bread? Couldn't you just turn these rocks into bread and solve your hunger problem? So Jesus is hungry, and where does Satan attack? He attacks the weak spot. He uses food. It doesn't work, though. Uh, Jesus remembers what God has said. Uh, remains faithful. He, he quotes scripture right back to, uh, to Satan. Um, but boy, this, this aspect or this idea of attacking the weak spot, you know, maybe you've heard that acrostic before, halt, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, that when we're in those conditions, we are, we are ripe for the picking, that those are, those are, those are clear weak spots that we aren't at full, we aren't at full strength, we aren't functioning with all of our capacities, we're hungry, we're angry, we're lonely, we're tired. When you look in the rearview mirror and you see the times that you failed, that you fall into temptation, not every time, but I bet you a, a number of times, those are factors at play. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Satan loves to attack weak spots. And he goes at it with, with food. Jesus' response, though, is such a, a powerful response. You know, this idea of famine or hunger, world hunger, I mean, that, those are real problems. And, and those are real problems that, that we should not overlook as the people of God. You know, Matthew chapter 25, at the end of this gospel, 
we, we get clear from Jesus where he says that, uh, that providing, providing real food for people that need food is a marker of his followers. That those who were hungry, when you fed them, Jesus says, you actually, you fed me. And so like this idea of caring about physical hunger, like that's important and we should not ignore that. But Jesus' response in the face of hunger is actually to identify the truest famine, like the deepest hunger in the whole wide world is, our, is the hunger for God's word, for who God is, whether people realize it or not. Jesus is in a state of severe hunger. He's under spiritual attack. And yet his, this is his response to Satan. People don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is the source of life. When, we, when you think about God's word, what, what I want to invite you to think about is the fact that he's an initiator, that he's the one who chooses to speak, that we didn't have to go ask him to speak. I, I know that, that we often feel like, God, what are you doing? God, why are you silent? But the really good news is that God is already initiated. God is already the one who communicated with us. God is the one who acted first. God has spoken. He's the source of life. He's the initiator. His, his words brought the world into existence. His words that are recorded here in our Bible reveal, us, reveal to us who he is and how we can be right with him. I don't want you to miss that just, he doesn't just turn to God's word in this first temptation. He turns to God's word every single time that he's tempted. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear from God. We need to digest what he says. We need to believe what he says. It is one of the ways that, that Jesus is equipped to navigate the world. So Satan attacks weak spots. He also uh, attacks strong spots. Isn't that good news? Yeah, uh, verse 5 and 6. So the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So where, where does, where does uh, Satan take Jesus? To the holy city? On the holy temple? Quoting holy scripture? Talking about holy angels? It's holy, holy, holy. Everything's holy. All of it. He takes him to the holy city, on the holy temple, quoting the holy Bible, pointing to holy angels. You think that might be Jesus' wheelhouse? I mean, Jesus is God. You think holiness might be his wheelhouse? And Satan brings him to all of these categories of holiness, plays them all before him. And it's like, you know, Dale Bruner, one commentator, he says, if the first temptation smelled like a bakery, the second temptation smelled like a liturgical worship service. Satan brings Jesus right to this place where there's all of these holy dynamics at play and he tries to get Jesus to derail his life. He tries to get Jesus to bail on the plan and instead listen to Satan. He tries to use Jesus' wheelhouse to derail him, to confuse him. Satan attacks your strong spots too. Well, this doesn't work either. Uh, Jesus remembers what God has said. And in verse 7, you see Jesus quote scriptures back to him and uh, remain faithful. Satan attacks your, your weak spots. Satan attacks your strong spots. And then Satan is all about easy shortcuts. 
he, he is about, uh, he's about shortcuts, man. Um, he, he came to the earth. Jesus came to the earth on a rescue mission. And that rescue mission was to restore the world, to, to make it all right, to make all things new. And how is he going to do that? He's going to do that through his good and perfect kingdom, where he reigns as the one true king. You know, in Mark's gospel, the first way that we meet Jesus is him saying, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He's the king. Matthew is all about kingdom throughout his whole gospel. It's revealing to us, in some ways, little by little, that this Jesus is the king, the king of the whole earth, the good king that we've all been waiting for. That's the project. Glory is coming, and it's going to fill the earth. Glory for all of creation. But there's still work to be done. Glory is going to fill the earth. What does Satan want to do? Satan wants Jesus to selfishly claim all the glory for himself right now. This, this third temptation is Satan saying, don't go through all that stuff. Just take it. Do it your own way. Don't you want that glory? Don't you want that power? Take the shortcut. Don't follow the plan. Well, that doesn't work either. Jesus remembers what God has said and, and remains, remains faithful. But shortcuts... Boy, there's a lot we could say about shortcuts, isn't there? Uh, they're not always bad. I mean, I tend to drive fast, and I tend to like to get from point A to point B as quickly as possible. And so shortcuts um, are something that, uh, you know, I enjoy, I enjoy a shortcut. Um, but there are plenty of other shortcuts in life. You know, moral shortcuts, financial shortcuts uh, that are available to us, that are contrary to God's good way. They're actually distorting what is good and what is right. And Satan loves to dangle them. Don't you want it now? Don't you want it now? And we live in an instant gratification culture. And so a lot of it makes sense. Why wait? Why wait? Why wait for anything? So Satan attacks your weak spots. He attacks your strong spots. He loves to present to you easy shortcuts. Why do I think that that's not what I have up there? He's about instant gratification. That's what it is. Okay. Um, shortcuts, instant gratification. Um, and he's been using these strategies all along. The, 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 some of these, like, this, it's what's been showing up all along. I've already referenced Genesis 3 a few times. But it's like, is it not interesting that he just tipped his hand? Right off the bat, this is what he did with Adam and Eve. It's what he's been doing all along. He, he wants to do it to you, too. There's a little book. I thought we had copies, and I was going to put it out on our book wall, but we don't have any copies. Uh, the, the Screwtape Letters by, by C.S. Lewis. If, if you're familiar with them, it's this communication between two demons, and it's about how to derail Christians. And it's just, it's, it's C.S. Lewis at his, like, creative peak. It's, they are, not every one of them, but many of them are so interesting. They are so intriguing to just, like, think, wow, like, isn't that true? Like one of them is about church attendance, and the and what the, the the senior deacon or the senior deacon the senior demon, his thought is like get them going to church, and keep them going to church, and make them think that going to church is what it's all about. Another one of the letters is get them to feel without doing, 
And the more you can get them to feel without doing, the more separate the feeling and the doing becomes. And then they just become people who think about it all the time or feel it all the time, but they don't do anything about it. And, and you, you re- read the book for yourself, but all, all of these just liter- literally demonic strategies to, to deceive and to, to harm the people of God, to present distorted views of the world. And Satan does that here with Jesus. He did it in the garden with Adam and Eve. When you read the pages of the Bible, he's doing it time and time again. He's doing it in your life right now, and he wants to keep doing it. You know, he has has no shame. Uh, When you think about he attacks your weak spots, like that's, you know, if you were ever in a fight with someone and they were attacking your weak spot, like that, that's, that's such a weak, that's, that's, it's embarrassing to do that. He doesn't care. When you think about him attacking your, your strong spots, you know, maybe you're familiar with the martial arts, it's called judo. You know, the genius of judo is it uses your momentum against you. And that's, it's almost like Satan is the greatest judo artist ever. If you, if you want to be serious about holiness, he'll be like, okay, let's do that. And he'll make you a legalist. If you want to be, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, he'll just use your momentum against you. He'll use your strong spot against you. He he has no shame. He doesn't care what the outcome is as long as the outcome is not intimacy with the God of heaven. As long as the outcome is not intimacy with the people of God. He doesn't care what other option there is. He's fine if you want to sit on the sidelines. He's fine if you want to be a legalist. He's fine if you want to go be a rebel. He's fine with all kinds of options. There's one option he doesn't want. And that is the option of faithfully following Jesus. And so he distorts and lies. And that's what he wants to do. Distort and destroy. Sin steals life with God. The Bible tells us that when sin showed up in Genesis 3, it, it, it separated creation from God. And that's what it does in your life. It steals from you life with God. So the Bible says, flee temptation, run from it, say no, and get out of there. It's good advice. John chapter 10 tells us that Satan is out there looking to seek, he's seeking to kill and destroy. First Peter 5 says that Satan is roaming around like a lion, looking at looking for whom he might devour. Don't play with it. Don't play with sin. Don't play with temptation. It's not a fair fight. Is all he wants to do is distort and destroy and kill. He's trying to destroy Jesus and his mission to make all things new. But Jesus stands up to the test. It's beautiful. How do we wrap this up? Well, I could share some strategies with you on how you can beat Satan's temptations too. And it's important. We want to be aware of temptation. We want to say no to temptation. We want to say no to sin. Sin is what separated us from God. But instead of teaching like some sermon titled Three Steps to Stop Temptation or you know, a do-it-yourself series, and today is you know, how to beat Satan like Jesus did, man, there is something so much better. Such, such better news. Let, let me tell you why you need something better then three steps to stop temptation. Because if all we have are strategies to say no to temptation, then you and I are trouble. We are in such trouble. Think about this scenario here in chapter four. Satan tempts Jesus time and time again. Every single time, Jesus just slams the door in Satan's face. 
Satan doesn't get an inch of progress. There's no wavering in Jesus. There's no, oh, he's thinking about it. He's thinking about, oh, no, no. No, every single time, it's an immediate no. It's an immediate slamming of the door. And yet, read the rest of Jesus' life. Does Satan be like, oh, I lost to him in the wilderness. I guess it's over. No, Satan keeps coming back. In Luke's account of this, he says that when Satan had, when Satan had finished all of his temptations, he departed until an opportune time. Satan looked at Jesus and said, okay, yeah, you said no all these times. I'll be back. And if Satan thinks about Jesus like that, then what must he think when he looks at me? I am a sitting duck. I am easy pickings. It, it is not a good situation. I could, I could fend him off today. Guess what? He's coming back tomorrow. You can say no to temptation today. Temptation will be back tomorrow. Saying no to temptation is important. But do you see how demoralizing it is? If all we have is here's three steps. Here's three resources. Good luck for tomorrow. Don't you want some better news than that? We need more than strategies to say no to temptation. We need someone who can actually crush the tempter. And that is the good news of Jesus, because Jesus did that. The only one who could and ever actually, um, uh, whoever could actually beat Satan, did it. He beat him here in Matthew 4. He beats him every other single time, including when he goes to the cross and is buried in the tomb. This is such good news because have you asked yourself what happens when you fail? Have you asked yourself what happens when you fall to temptation? Je Jesus passed the test. Jesus aced it. Three times that we know of, smashed it all three times. What about you? What about me? What about when we fall? What about when we fail? What about when temptation showed up Friday night and you didn't say no? What, what, what hope do we have in that moment? You think God quits on you? Boy, that's a natural thought. It is a really natural thought when you've said yes to temptation instead of no to temptation, to, you know, within hours, to be hanging your head and to be thinking there's no way that God could love me. There's no way that God could be okay with me. I failed again. He's got to be sick and tired of this. Do you know who loves you in that condition? Satan loves you in that condition. Satan loves to go all after when you are discouraged and you think that there's no way that God could love you, he's going to be like, you are 100% right, he doesn't. You're a failure. You said yes, you should have said no. You're an embarrassment. Here's what I want you to listen to. Listen to 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you, do you know what good news that is right there? John says, okay, I just, I just wrote what I wrote to you so that you don't sin. It's bad for you. It's toxic. It steals from you the good life that God wants for you. Don't do it. But if you do, guess what happens? Your advocate still stands up. Jesus Christ still stands up and says, that one's mine. I know, I know, I know he got wayward again. 
I know he got sideways again, but he's mine and he's in me and he is loved and he's adopted and he's part of the family and no one can pluck him out of it. He's in. So the, the advice here is yes, run from sin. But even when you do sin, Jesus is still your advocate. If you've run to him, if you've trusted him to rescue you, you are literally rescued. He stands for you time and time again before the Father saying, this one's mine. Jesus is offering you to come to him. That You, you, you want to be in Christ? You, you, you got to come to him. You got to run to him and you got to trust him to rescue you. You got to recognize that you can't save you. That even if you have this incredible track record of saying no to temptation all these times, let me tell you something. The Bible says that all have sinned, that we're all, we, all of us have failed at some point. And there's more temptation coming tomorrow. The hope of the gospel is not that I will never fail again. The hope of the gospel is that my advocate, Jesus, stands on my behalf and he never, ever quits. He never, ever turns his back on me. All the failures, all the mistakes, all the stumbles. You see, when you realize this, you start to love him. It enhances your trust of him so that when you face temptation next time, you actually start to ask questions from a deeper level. And you actually start to, to, to recognize that the person who told you to run from this is the one who loves you. And you love him. You begin to actually believe that this way is good and that sin is what damages you. So you get to the place where you're not so much saying no to sin as you are beginning to say yes to Christ. You're beginning to look at him and say, he's, he's so good and he's so faithful to me. You're saying no gets so much easier when your heart is captivated with love for Jesus. Have you seen what he does for you? Have you seen what he's done for you? Have you run to him and trusted him to save you? And this is the kind of attitude it can cultivate. It's a quote, it's not on the screen, but it's a quote from, from this little book called Gospel Primer. And this is what it says. In, in moments of temptation, I enjoy saying to myself, you know, I can commit this sin. And God's grace would abound to me all the more as he maintains my justified status. But it is precisely for this reason that I choose not to commit this sin. In such moments, I can walk away from sin with laughter in my heart. You know, sometimes we have these sins and we're like a dog with a bone and we will not let go. Well, do you know how you get a bone from a dog? You offer it a steak. And that is what we are being offered in the good news about Jesus. Yeah, sin is attractive. Sin is wooing us. Yes. But when your eyes have seen the glory and the goodness of what Jesus Christ has done for you, it's like offering you a stake to this bone. And it changes your motivations. And it changes your heart. And you begin to see that this one who died for you now stands for you. And he's constantly saying, this one's mine. And he's worth following. He's worth following with everything you got. And as this author said, you can walk away from sin with laughter in your heart. I don't have to do that anymore. 
You can walk away with laughter in your heart. And so can you. Not, not because you're strong enough, but because Christ is good enough. Not because you're able to beat Satan, but because Christ already did. We're going to go to the table. Man, my, my invitation today is really going to be clear. Uh, if you have not run to Christ as your one true rescue, as the only one who can actually do something about your sin problem, then today is the day. There are going to be prayers on the screen, and I invite you to cry out to Christ so that he becomes your advocate, so that you are in Christ and clothed in his righteousness, so that you actually have the protection of the one who conquered the tempter. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thanks for this text. We thank you for uh, Jesus. Man, so amazing. His uh, full-on commitment to the mission, his full-on commitment to, to, to your word, to righteousness, his example to us of saying no to temptation, of not being uh, duped by the lies of, of, of Satan. It's incredible. But what's even more incredible is that this same one, Jesus, just a few years after this, goes to the cross and takes upon himself the sin of the whole world. Every one of my sins, every single time that I failed temptation, that, that was on Jesus' shoulders when he hung on that cross. And he paid for every bit of it. And now he stands and he says, this one's mine. This is a loved one. This is an adopted one. This is a forgiven one. God, that's such good news. Our hope of beating temptation Maybe, God, would you give us strength for it? We, we need help. But we thank you that there's one who went so much further and conquered the tempter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.